0: 3CR Breakfast. Oh, yeah. Alternative news, analysis Clap and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to
1: late
2: 30am. 3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast 3CR pays respects to elders past present of the cooler nations, and we recognize their unceded sovereignty. You're listening to 3CR Thursday Breakfast. It is currently seven o'clock. Um, it is also freezing cold outside. <laughs> there is an icy wind out there. <laughs> um, I'm joined with Leela in the studio, and we're both wearing big old jumpers and scarves. Um, I hope everybody's being able to stay warm. Um, How's your day been? We've been.
3: Well, I think it was one of those days where I was thinking, I'm just so glad sometimes that I do radio and no one has to see my three backwards shirts that I tried to put on in the dark. (laughs) (laughs)
2: Putting on clothes in the dark in the morning before radio definitely is uh, a sight to behold. (laughs) Yes, it's also a skill that you don't get better at. (laughs) No, I don't think so. My sleep on Wednesday nights still has never improved. Um, But we do it for the love of the community. Um, (laughs) And maybe we'll do a little rundown of what we're going to chat through today. I'll kick off. We'll first hear from Anurag, who is an organiser, critic and recently retired DJ living and working on unceded Wurundjeri country. They run digital performance space Room2.fm, occasional party series Cool Room and work as a booker at Experimental and club music venue Miscellanea. Next up. Sorry. They uh, joined me yesterday to speak about their recent DJ hiatus, Holistic Safety and Representation, you know, the trappings of elitism, artist exploitation and what it means to make decisions based on creative and cultural merit. Take it away, Lila.
3: <laughs> I was just too excited about our guest that we're going to have on after Anurag, which is Wagaya Wamba Wamba Elder and Chair of the Yuruk Justice Commission, Eleanor Burke. Yuruk is the first formal truth-telling process aimed at addressing systemic harms and injustices experienced by First Peoples since colonisation. Today, Eleanor will bring us updates from the Commission, which began in 2020.
2: And then you'll hear from a fellow 3CR show, Done by Law, where Beth King was joined by Darcy from Forest Conservation Victoria and Natalie Hogan from Environment Justice Australia. To end to discuss the end of native forest logging announced in the state budget on Tuesday and the anti-protest law that remain in place.
3: And finally, we will hear from Idil, they them and Lara, she her, who are committed members of the community collective Mahala, run alongside two others, Aisu and Majed. Mahala is a creative community hub that aims to foster ways to stay connected to our cultures through public gatherings like picnics, conversations, dance nights, film screenings and much more. They offer an exclusive safe that is safe and welcoming for all. Mahala community consists of cultures from all across the Middle East and Anatolia. They join us to Today to speak about Mahala's earthquake relief fundraiser for Turkey and Syria at Schoolhouse Studios in Coburg this Sunday.
2: So we have a really lovely, exciting show for you. Um, loads of really important topics, um, and then some lighter ones. I think to you know, ease it into the show. Well, we will be back in just a sec. Three
4: CR would like to thank our sponsors, Earth Greetings. Cards that connect, care, and celebrate. Support wildlife and habitat with every purchase. Inspired by nature, giving back to the planet. Learn more at earthgreetings.com.au
3: These are the news headlines for Thursday the 25th of May. Listeners, please be advised the following contains mention of a First Nations person who has died. Four people charged with the murder of Nunga Yamachi teenager Cassius Turvey last year have this week pleaded not guilty. Cassius' family attended the arraignment at Stirling Gardens Magistrates Court in Perth on Wednesday, where the accused entered their not guilty pleas via video link. Brodie Lee Palmer, 27, Mitchell Colin Forth, 24, Jack Stephen James Brearley, 21, and Alicia Louise Gilmore, 20, were charged with murder after allegedly chasing and attacking 15-year-old Cassius with a metal pole last year, last October, while he was walking home from school. Turvey died from his injuries in hospital 10 days later. The tragedy triggered a national outpouring of rage and grief, with vigils held in solidarity with the Turvey family around the country. Cassius has been remembered by his friends and family as a loving son and role model. At the age of 11, he was invited to deliver an Acknowledgement of Country in the Western Australian Parliament, and prior to his death, he had started his own lawn mowing business. Brearley and Forth have also been accused of the kidnapping and wounding of another 15-year-old boy the day before Cassius was attacked, with both pleading not guilty. Gilmore pleaded not guilty to detaining the same boy. The four additionally pleaded not guilty to attacking and stealing from another young teen on the same day of Cassius' alleged attack. The accused have been remanded in custody until 31st of July, when they will appear before the court again for a trial date to be announced. If this headline has caused you to distress and you would like to speak to someone... You can call Lifeline on one three one 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 four. That's Lifeline on one three one 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 four. For Mob only support, you can call one three yarn on one three nine two seven six. That's one three nine two seven six for Mob only support.
2: In other news, Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi has visited Australia this week and was warmly received by Prime Minister Anthony Albanese, despite allegations of serious human rights violations under Modi's leadership. The two leaders signed new agreements on Wednesday on migration and green hydrogen, pledging to further strengthen relationships between the two countries, sidestepping media questioning about Modi's human rights record, including alleged crackdown on India's Muslim community. Albanese welcomed Modi with a mass rally at Sydney Olympic Park. On Channel 7's Sunrise program, Albanese rejected Modi, being labelled as a quote-unquote tyrant, instead lauding Modi's popularity with a majority of people in India, and citing India's status as a success story and the world's largest democracy. This is despite an increasing widespread consensus on Modi's BJP promoting a right wing Hindu nationalist agenda. Elaine Pearson, Asia Director of Human Rights Watch, has urged Australia quote not to sideline human rights concerns unquote, during the visit. Modi's BJP led government has continued to tighten its grip on Indian civil society and it's accused of arresting, intimidating activists, political opponents, academics and protesters. The World Press Freedom Index has scored India at 161 out of 180 countries listed, with the nation's rating plummeting after Modi's leadership due to escalating violence against journalists and politically partisan media. Allegations of human rights violations have plagued Modi since early in his political career in Gujarat's state legislature. A group of protesters drew attention to these issues outside of Kirribilli House on Wednesday, chanting, Modi, 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 the butcher of Gujarat, and Modi, blood is on your hands, and with the victims we stand.
3: And finally, in news headlines New analysis from investment bank UBS shows that prices at Australia's leading supermarkets have reached new highs. Amidst the ongoing cost-of-living crisis, UBS found that supermarket prices have outpaced inflation over the last year, raising further questions about the adequacy of the Albanese government's cost-of-living interventions in this month's federal budget. UBS Australia's Evidence Lab tracked the online prices of 60,000 grocery items at Coles and Woolworths identifying a 9.6% increase in prices over 12 months to April this year. This outstrips increases in the Consumer Price Index, measuring prices' changes in goods and services, which reached 7% in in the 12 months to March. UBS expressed surprise at the rising rate of food inflation, with the report stating that this new peak may be quote due to ongoing cost pressures on suppliers due to commodities and the domestic supply chain including labor both supermarket giants have disputed the UBS report with a spokesperson for Coles arguing against the accuracy of UBS inflation calculations and a spokesperson for Woolworths telling SBS News that rising costs reflected higher wholesale prices. SBS News, re- re- News reports that in the 2022 financial year, Coles posted a net profit of $1.48 point four eight billion. While Woolworth's net profit reached 1.5 billion. These have been the news headlines for Thursday, the 25th of May. You're listening to 3CR on 855 AM.
4: 3CR's annual
0: Radiothon fundraiser launches in June. We need your financial support to be independent, community controlled and focused on people rather than profits.
4: Your support during Radiothon keeps the station radical and enables us to give voice to hundreds of people and issues for another year.
0: And remember, any amount you can afford makes a big difference and all donations over $2 are tax deductible.
4: 3CR Radiothon, show your support during June 2023, 3CR, stay tuned, stay radical.
2: You will now g- listen to an interview with Anurag, who is a organiser, critic and recently retired DJ living and working on unceded Wurundjeri country. They run digital performance space, room2.fm occasional party series Cool Room, and work as a booker at experimental and club music venue Miscellanea. They joined me yesterday to speak about their recent DJ hiatus, safety and representation, the trappings of elitism, artist exploitation, and what it means to make decisions based on creative and cultural merit. Thanks so much for coming on the show, Rag. How are ya?
1: Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm good. Just finished my day of work and now excited to chat about all these things I've been writing about for the last few weeks.
2: You know, before we dive right into all of that, how you actually got into music and how you found the creative scene in and, um, and why you recently decided to go on an indefinite DJ hiatus.
1: I got into music as a, you know, as a 10-year-old, 10 11-year-old, 10 8-year-old. I think the first CD I ever bought was NSYNC, Bye Bye Bye. And then I think the second piece of music media i think which was a cassette i bought was um infected mushroom classical mushroom which is like a og kind of trance trance duo um but music's always just been my kind of comfort and space of safety i've was really just even as like a teenager when i think i was listening to a lot of really crap on interesting music i was just really passionate about discovering new music and spent a lot of time doing it and finding things which sounded new and interesting to me was always really just inspiring and rejuvenating. Then, you know, when I started going out to parties and house parties and, you know, really bad club nights as an 18 year old, when I felt really awkward and out of place, I often would just kind of find like a sense of comfort on the dance floor, where I could just lose myself in the music and dance and move unselfconsciously. consciously And I think that kind of paved the way for, me moving towards kind of dance music spaces and becoming a lot more involved in them uh in terms of how i found the creative scene in Narm, yeah it's you know it's it's really incredible here i feel so lucky to live here where there's amazing shows you know six nights a week very regularly where there's so many amazing people across a range of disciplines across music and visual practice and performance and Those are the good things. I think think in some ways it's very competitive and mean here. I think the kind of legacy of, you know, really intense, like 2015 to 2019 kind of call-out culture has carried on in ways that involve us being hypercritical of our peers. And I definitely engage in those practices a lot and have in the past, even though I try and check them and consider them So yeah, the the scene is simultaneously thriving here and also kind of mean.
2: And then, yeah, I think, you know, outside looking in, you're like, well, why would you stop? Why wouldn't you want to keep going? But I guess that's my inner capitalist (laughs) hustle culture talking, you know.
1: It it is interesting, though, that you bring that up. You know, it, it is, I think it does often feel like this escalator of either what's next or how can I maintain this level of success and like success doesn't really mean financial, but I think it still means playing really meaningful, exciting, special shows, not let a desire to play regularly or have it be a significant part of my income impact how I approached it. And over time, I think particularly since 2021, when I had a kind of tidal wave of good fortune and was playing a lot of really incredible shows, realized that it really was you know like a lot of my engagement on social media was you know promoting myself and posting about stuff I was doing which never really felt great I particularly realized after I made the decision to stop or at least go on indefinite hiatus we'll see what happens that um yeah I realized that oh like I don't actually need to go to this party I don't need to go and see this person play every weekend part of it is also you know just me wanting to kind of embed reciprocity and just support people who are supporting me, which I think the intention was good and that was a good practice, but it just really ended up taking a lot of my time and headspace and creative energy. I just would keep having these thoughts while I was playing. Like, why am I doing this? Do I really want to be up at two in the morning right now? Do I really want to be undergoing this hearing damage? Do I really want to be disrupting my sleep schedule like this? Does this even have a point Th- these thoughts would repeatedly come up and i would push them aside and still find a lot of joy in it but then in a recent gig i was just these thoughts came up again yeah i i just kind of realized that for at least me djing is a bit of an ego trap in that there's so much elevation of the individual in it and the kind of thoughts and almost entitlement i would say that engendered in me is not really where i wanted to be going and that other kind of simpler and more wholesome creative stuff like learning tabla which is like a classical indian hand drum that I I learn and I'm terrible at has actually felt a lot more nourishing i've had a really great run djing and you know, i've like you said i've got to play in avanica which was always my dream gig you know that was the highest mountain i could ever hope to climb i got to do all these things i'm just not sure if there was anything else for me to do or say with the medium I decided to take space from it and that's feeling good.
2: Yeah, I, it's such a hard thing, I think, to be able to sit with that and like try to understand like where is this coming from, checking in with yourself and your community and what you need. You know, I, I try not to say brave, but it feels brave to me, like <laughs> um, someone who is taking really important steps to try to have like make creative decisions and be part of the community, call it out, (laughs) being able to step away from that and do something for yourself that feels more meaningful, like, you know, playing doubler as well. I think that's a really inspiring thing to do.
1: Um, Thank you. Yeah. on, On the, on the bravery thing, part of it is, I feel like, unless I set myself really hard boundaries, I can't follow them. And that's also why I've made it into a bit of a public thing. Because if I make a personal decision of like, I'm just going to take less gigs, I probably won't adhere to that. But if I kind of make this big, dramatic public post, then (laughs) I'll feel like a fucking idiot if I don't adhere to it. So it's kind of just to help me accountable as well, because I know I'm so good, so bad at sticking to you know little shifts that's why yeah. i'm being a bit dramatic about
2: it i think utilizing peer pressure that you call on for yourself <laughs> i think it's a great way to get things done i think i, I want to go back to you know what you said about elitism and i think the trappings of elitism you know there's such an importance of connecting with your peers and connecting with your community practicing with your craft and community work that also ties into djing and it's such an important point and i often think about you know what categorizes like a quote-unquote a good DJ or a good performer. For you, why is it so important that, you know, DJing does have a real connection to the community and, you know, how do we get away from the elitism trap? Yeah,
1: I I view it more as like not even so much about elitism but more as like giving the right people a platform. And yeah. the right people is like a really fraught idea but in in my head the framework around who should be offered a platform because there is a there is a finite amount of space for DJs you know like despite the you know DJ population growing exponentially for the past 7 years there are only so many gigs so many venues so many people who are interested in attending those kind of shows so it is it is unfortunately there is an element of like competition for space and it's not there isn't an infinite amount of space and as more DJs come like being a DJ doesn't inherently Create space; it, it takes it up. Um, so in terms of who I think are the right people, who we would ideally have a creative ecosystem that prioritizes are yeah, people who are creating space for others, people who are in it for the right reasons. And again, this is a really, this is not a thing I try to police interpersonally. I think it's a really fraught thing, a really complicated thing of, you know, how, how can you judge somebody else's intention you never can accurately but i think because of the current paradigm of djing being so easy as a creative practice to start with and being very rewarding in terms of cultural capital you know like the the influencer to dj pipeline right now is so strong in that somebody who somebody whose music is not an incredibly sacred profound essential thing to the core of their being and life can enter a DJ space really quickly and have Instagram followers, get further cultural capital for that. I don't think that's good. I don't think that's healthy. And those aren't the kind of people I'm really interested in sharing space with or platforming. So when it comes to who is a good DJ performer, I think it's people who are invested in the practice because they love music and because they're interested in lifting up others and actually engaged in the practice of that.
2: And understanding that, It is an investment into your craft and like speaking about how it's like really important for your soul to be able to share that music and experiment with those spaces and mostly just lift people up with you. I think I'm also interested in your thoughts on like how to create like safer spaces that are actually culturally responsive in like all levels, not just like who's on the lineup. What do you think is kind of getting in the way of... (laughs) Holistic, safer safety and representation in the scene. and I know that that can seem like a bit of a big question, but
1: it's a big question. The, the tricky thing I'm learning, I'm feeling more and more lately with this question around like representation at all levels is, I think working particularly in anti or like non spaces that are not highly commercialized. so you know small clubs, small parties stuff that isn't like mainstream festivals. There's a lot of, you know, unpaid work that goes into it or underpaid work. There's a lot of thankless labor. The kind of clout and financial payoff of organizing events is not comparable at all to the huge clout and moderate financial payoff of being a DJ. So while part of me is like, yeah, we want, we should have more brown and black and queer and whatever people organizing parties. I'm also not really sure if I can recommend that kind of work to people who already have it tough due to systemic issues. So now I kind of view it as reducing the barriers to entry for people into doing that kind of work and and doing that primarily by knowledge sharing or trying to engage with people who are already engaged in that kind of work and are marginalized in some ways, but also thinking a bit more big picture and long-term about what are the ways we can have these spaces be better funded by government, by council, by punters just being willing to spend a bit more on tickets. You know, like, yeah, I'm thinking more about these like broader cultural shifts at the moment rather than ways to simply get more people of color or whatever through the organizing door, just because the work is kind of shit, even though it's really rewarding in some sense and really important
2: being able to you know do that work and contribute to the space and your community can feel so fulfilling you know when people are you know historically excluded and they're being underpaid and they're more likely to be exploited it can be really hard to navigate that and speaking of artist exploitation you know you've spoken about boiler room and spotify you know they really use their status as companies to impede on paying artists fairly. Um, and it's kind of built into their business model. So I don't know, I mean, what impact do you think that this has on art?
1: Yeah, it's, it's a really fraught one. And I kind of see this issue at the core of all creative economy issues and as the most pressing issue, um, particularly for producers rather than DJs in music. Like the opportunities to make money through music are much more geared towards DJs than people who are producing the music. And I think a lot of that is due to Spotify and you know a series of events over the past 15 years, but Spotify being a big piece of that, really devaluing music and normalizing the idea that it's normal to spend just $10 or $15 or whatever the Spotify costs now, a month on a subscription. And that gets you access to all of the music made in the history of mankind basically and it's just not sustainable you know i think this kind of breeds this entitlement of consumers where music is so cheap and the result is that it's so hard to make money off music which means that only not only but it's much easier for people with a lot of financial and class privilege to be the ones who can actually commit to their practice because they don't need to get money from it, to make it sustainable. That plays out in all these you know, issues of representation and race and gender and sexuality. But at the core, I think it's about who has access to make money from music and how that shifts the demographics of who can actually spend time doing it
2: maybe i've touched on a lot of like what you've thought about the industry what are the barriers to access and you know class privilege and artist exploitation maybe we can wrap up with like when we're thinking about the festivals that you really like like innovatica and your spaces that you like co-run like cool room and room two where you make really important decisions creative and cultural merit rather than business it really allows for relationship building and capacity building so what makes these spaces so lovable why is it different
1: the simplest way to put it comes down just to intention and care you know people putting in a lot of work to often people who are artists or have been involved in a grassroots way in community. so they're actually in touch with what artists need and both the tangible and intangible things that create supportive beautiful experiences for artists you know with in Ivarnika, I think the fact that they've been doing it for a long time, putting in a lot of work in, and kind of, you know, been running out of passion on this model that I don't think is really financially sustainable for 10 years. They all just put a lot of work and care in, and I think, I mean, I, I don't know of the complicated privilege dynamics of every person involved in the festival, but I think a lot of them, you know, come from a place of stability and privilege, and as a result, have the resources to pour into supporting others. And I think what makes it really good is I don't think there's a lot of ego kind of going on with the organizers of the festival, or at least it's in a way where they can really prioritize artists and create environments that support them. And yeah, I guess that's what we try and do at Cool Room and Room 2 is just create experiences where artists are the priority at basically all times. It's it's this tricky balance of how do you look after yourself while creating something that supports other people with a very limited pool of resources. So it's walking this tightrope and definitely don't always get it right. But yeah. it's about yeah, prioritizing artists while looking after yourself enough.
2: And where can we find you? Because I know you're not on the Instagrams very much anymore. So what can we do to...
1: I'm kind of back on there a bit. Now that I'm not only posting on my own shit, it feels a bit less cursed to be on there. And, you know. <laughs> yeah. So my Instagram is a.nu.rag. Yeah. And, but I'm finding a lot more meaningful engagement through a newsletter I've started recently. And you can find that at anuragbartia.substack.com. So A-N-U-R-A-A-G. B-H-A-T-I-A dot sub-s-u-b-s-t-a-c-stack.com.
2: Amazing. Thank you so much, Rag. We will link all of that in the show notes, but hope you have a lovely day. Thanks so much for joining us here today.
1: Thanks so much for having me. Great questions.
2: No Appreciate worries. Any type. You've just had an interview with Anurag, who is an organiser, critic, and recently retired DJ, living on unceded Wurundjeri country. They run digital performance space Room 2 FM, occasional party series Cool Room, and work as a booker at experimental and club venue Miscellanea. And they joined me yesterday to speak about their recent DJ hiatus, safety and representation, the trappings of elitism, artists' exploitation, and what it means to make decisions based on creative and cultural merit. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM, and it is currently 7.30 3CR
4: would like to thank our sponsors, Earth Greetings. Cards that connect, care, and celebrate. Support wildlife and habitat with every purchase. Inspired by nature, giving back to the planet. Learn more at earthgreetings.com.au We're back on 3CR
3: 855 AM Thursday breakfast, and next up, I am excited to introduce Wergaya Wamba Wamba Elder and Chair of Yoruk Justice Commission, Eleanor Burke. Yuruk is the first formal truth telling process aimed at addressing systemic harms and injustices experienced by First Peoples since colonisation. Today, Eleanor will bring us updates from the Commission, which began back in 2020. Good morning, Eleanor. How are you?
6: Good, thank you. Thanks very much. Thank Thank you you so much
3: for joining us. We really appreciate your time. So first, I thought we could go over a little bit of background. I wanted to ask what motivated the establishment of your Justice Commission and what does it aim to achieve?
6: Well, the Uruk Justice Commissioner arose out of the First People's Assembly Uh, when they were looking at uh, the concept of treaty making. uh, They decided uh, sensibly that it would be important to have a truth-telling exercise which would help uh, our people put uh, voices to the public record but also inform other Victorians about what happened uh, when this state now called Victoria uh, was um, settled or invaded, uh, however you want to look at it. But the full story was not on the public record uh, and visible to people, and our education system sadly um, waxes and wanes about um, uh, history, I think, these days.
3: Yeah, absolutely. So I think that's a really good premise to talk about why truth-telling is so important when it comes to First People's Justice. Would you be able to speak more to that point?
6: Well, the experience has been uplifting. It's been uh, sad, traumatising and very hard at times. But the experience overall is that our people want to do this. Most of our people want to do this. And it helps them in some ways, and the very worst uh, incidents of where um, bad things have happened uh this is even more so that uh, people who come before us and talk about some very hard things um, they sometimes say they feel lightened, but also they are getting their story across because how would anybody else ever know? The experiences their families have had across generations and the trauma that has been
7: uh, uh,
6: the burden that um, many of our families have carried from the beginning of colonisation. Yeah. so it's uh, really important that the public record uh, carries our people's voices and we are getting great responses, although we would like some more submissions from our people, supported submissions, to tell whatever they wish. Uh, that's really important, I think, to go on the public record, uh, things that people say and write down with uh, somebody from rook are really important to be able to be used on the public record and to be um, available for the future, for future Victorians.
3: Yeah, absolutely. And we will include all the relevant links. So anyone who's listening today can go to our podcast page, our Thursday Breakfast podcast page, and find those links and make a submission if you'd like. Now, Eleanor, I also read that there is counselling and legal advice available all free for people who aim to make submissions, is that correct?
6: That's absolutely right. We have a team of uh, social and emotional wellbeing uh, people uh, are ready and uh, they're put in touch with anybody who comes into contact with us early on when they're preparing to either speak or make a submission and legal advice. We have a, a, an arrangement with um, Bells and uh, another agency to um, to support our people uh, where they
3: need legal uh, advice as well yeah it's great to hear that um, Yoruk is acknowledging truth telling is not an easy process, and support is provided so yeah that's great, but just pivoting from some of the um Personal hearings of First Nations stories. Yurok has also recently questioned a number of Victorian ministers, bureaucrats, and the Chief Commissioner of Victoria Police. Could you tell us the focus of these most recent hearings in April and May? And maybe you could speak to some key evidence that has stayed with you as particularly important in the fight for First Peoples' justice.
6: Uh, uh, the past four weeks, we have dealt with senior bureaucrats, heads of departments, and they're, well, they're the heads of departments and ministers. And uh, it's been a very interesting experience. Uh, this is in the space of child protection and criminal justice, mm-hmm. not easy, easy areas to be uh, hearing some of the information that has come before us. And uh, we've been a- a- enabled to have our um, legal team question deep questions around treatment of Aboriginal people in, within these systems, and um, the connective, the connection with uh, the law, uh, which seems to permeate so many families' lives, uh, and uh, what happens when people are inside these systems and what doesn't happen that should happen and uh, we had um, apologies from uh, everybody that spoke at that senior level. Um, Some of the apologies had been submitted but then rewritten as they were getting closer to coming before us which Mm Me- meant they were hearing what was happening and they were making some adjustments, which was fine uh, and we had seven apologies in all formal on the public record um now the pol- apologies of course are the easiest path it's the um it's the uh, changes that need to be made to the treatment of our people within these systems, and uh, how um they are what happens now should not continue. For example, people, so many people mm. who are in jail who haven't, um, you know, haven't been charged with something, The, you know, the bail laws, the, um, the being on remand and just having, to, you know, too much time there when uh, they should be at home with their families. And the... Um, It's all now on the public record and will form part of this next report, which is um, we've got people beavering away on this critical issues report around child protection and criminal justice. And, of course, our recommendations are are really important, but some of those recommendations are reminders that there existed recommendations uh, around them before, you know, from the Royal, for example, the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody, which is now 30 years old.
3: Yeah, and I think um, issues like raising the age of criminal responsibility, um, those issues have been uh, really a priority for advocates for First Peoples justice and psychologists and industry professionals for a long time. So I am, yeah, I guess anticipating this report and maybe it can propel some of these long-discussed changes forward, hopefully.
6: Um, Well, well, since the hearings, we have heard uh, some... Statements from government and indeed from the premier about some of these issues that have been long-standing and indicating changes So we're hopeful of it's but it's what extent and when these changes will happen that is critical of course
3: Yeah, absolutely now I wanted to go to something a little bit more broad I want to hear your opinion on how Yuruk might change First Peoples' justice on a broader level going forward. Do you think that this commission has set a standard for other states to address historic and ongoing harms of colonisation?
6: Well, there's two, thing, two parts to for me to respond, or I'd like to respond in two ways to that. One is about training of people in the system. And, yes. And, you know, we're appalled that there's not adequate training and people appear not to be trained, and indeed people who are in uh, in these institutions are not also having access to courses that uh, actually they thought that they would have and would could take the opportunity of. So that, that's one side of things. But the other part of it is that um, we... Um, um, have we're very conscious and we have been from the beginning that other states are watching us and other states are doing uh, things already in this space, in the treaty space, and some in the truth-telling space. And, you know, we've got South Australia who started under a previous go- government in the Northern Territory, Queensland, uh, and um, they are watching us, but each state has its own, uh, you know, characteristics, as you know, and its own... Um, Different mm. settlement dates, and also uh, some have similar experiences. For example, Queensland's Act was a protection and opium act, I think, in a short term, uh, short name. So there's a similarity there with yeah. the word protection, which permeated our lives right up until you know the 1950s in Victoria. Uh, so, you know, 100 years under protection, which uh, was not protection. And, we're, you know, we're using the term even m- intending to be the care of children in um, in, uh, uh, in the government's protection. And uh, it's the wrong word.
3: Yeah, it's uh, interesting and also disturbing to see how that tradition has carried forward to now what we call the youth protection um, system. And yes, as we discussed, it's not protection at all, but control and often systemic abuse. So Well,
6: also child removal comes under the, uh, in that space. So it's with the removal of children mm-hmm. from their families and parents and communities that is the, the tragedy here.
3: Yeah, yes. And it's so important that Jurok is addressing that on public record. Next up, I wanted to ask, um, what is in store for the rest of the Commission? Just a vague timeline. I know that there was a 12-month extension. Um, yeah, would you be able to tell us a little bit about what's coming up in future?
6: Well, well we do have a 12-month extension, um, and we also have uh, a slight different uh, focus requested by the um, uh, the government to focus on on the public record in the last six months, which really focuses our mind because we 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 have so many things still to cover and yes. because it's such a big big brief we're, we're not going to be able to do all of those things. Our next pieces of work will be around land justice, which of course is about land, people, and place, and it will. Uh, draw so many thing, other things in, um, you know, our, our health and well being because we're on our own country. We lost that when we were removed from uh, the places that our uh, ancestors lived. We lost the ability to practice. We lost language. All of those things are going to come in our identity, and and of course um, uh, the potential for reparation. So it's a big piece of work, and that that's the next. Uh, piece that we're going to be doing and alongside that of course there's health and education that are big pieces as well and we've got to work out how we're going to manage those two strands um, and do justice to them but uh, another uh, concept that we have is to try and leave some legacy pieces or legacy projects, not just recommendations but some ideas and concepts for people to pick up and target uh, uh, and work with uh, our our people uh, to make change because we certainly have to change the education system so that uh, more people know exactly the history of this place that uh, we're sharing now. Uh, So many don't.
3: Yeah, absolutely. And even growing up as a person of colour, an immigrant settler person of colour, I didn't learn about our history until really recently, which is just so sad and unjust. Uh, I wanted to remind our listeners that you can view these hearings online and we'll uh, include that in the link. But if anyone is interested in witnessing these court hearings, you can also view them online. Um. Eleanor, I think we're going to have to wrap up there, but I'm so grateful for your time and thank you for sharing those stories and information with us today.
6: Thank you. Thank you so much. And I really appreciate the interest that 3CR has shown. We've been uh, welcome to speak there many times. So thank you.
3: Well, we're so glad to have you. Have a great day. Thank you. We just heard from Wagaya Wamba Wamba Elder and Chair of the Yoruk Justice Commission, Eleanor Burke. Eleanor brought us updates from the Commission, which began in 2020, and it is the first formal truth-telling process aimed at addressing systemic harms and injustices experienced by First Peoples since colonisation. Now, that did include some upsetting themes, and if anyone would like support, you can call One Three Yarn on one three nine two seven six. You can also call Lifeline on one three one 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 four. That's one three one 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 four. Thanks for tuning in to Thursday Breakfast on Three CR.
8: The Black Lives Matter movement is not going away here or overseas. It gives me hope seeing the numbers of people that turn out to these Invasion Day demonstrations in Melbourne. It gives me the understanding that we will win, folks. We will succeed!
5: You're listening to Radical Radio on 3CR, 855 on your AM dial, 3CR digital and podcasting and streaming on 3cr.org.au.
2: Next up, we're going to hear from fellow 3CR show Done by Law, uh, where Beth King was joined by Darcy from Forest Conservation Victoria and Natalie Hogan from Environmental Justice Australia to discuss the end of native forest logging around in the state budget on Tuesday and the anti-protest laws that still remain in place. Tonight, we will take the opportunity to celebrate the
0: historic win today on behalf of Victoria's forests, with the Victorian Government announcing that native forest logging will end by the first of January 2024 instead of 2030 as previously announced. This is a testament to decades of campaigning by citizen scientists, community groups and traditional owners who have held Vic Forests to account. They have documented the devastating destruction wrought by native forest logging particularly its impact on the habitat of some of Victoria's most precious threatened species. And they have used non-violent direct action and the legal system to bravely and in many cases successfully take on Vic Forests in court. However, we will also look at the draconian anti-protest laws passed by the Victorian government last year, which came into effect this past Saturday, the 20th of May. These laws are anti-democratic and risk imposing a dangerous chilling effect on vital peaceful public protest which has been aimed at protecting Victoria's forests. We're lucky to be joined by Darcy who is an active member of Forest Conservation Victoria, a community volunteer-run grassroots group that are taking a stand against the destructive logging that is happening all over Victoria. FCV use non-violent, peaceful direct action to campaign for the protection of precious forests and wildlife. Darcy's been involved in direct action and citizen science surveying, both vital to the protection of native forests. We're also excited to speak with Natalie Hogan, Ecosystems Lawyer with Environmental Justice Australia. EJA is a national public interest legal organisation aiming to use the law to empower communities seeking environmental justice, to defend nature and safeguard our climate, and to support First Nations people fighting for country and climate. Natalie and EJA have been heavily involved in representing local environment groups in their brave court actions against fig forests, utilising citizen scientist surveys to prove the impact of native forest logging on threatened species. Welcome Darcy and Natalie. Thanks,
4: Beth, yes, thanks, Beth and Ingrid.
0: Welcome to both of you. There's so much to cover given the exciting news about the end of Victorian native forest logging by the end of this year, rather than in 2030, as previously announced. To start with Natalie, why is this so crucial?
4: Yeah, what an amazing day to be talking about uh, Victoria's native Um, (laughs) forests. This is such an incredibly important announcement. Um, Victoria's forests are the lungs of regional communities. They're vital to healthy water supply provide homes for our precious and unique native wildlife. We support tourism for local economies and a critically important carbon sink. We're living in a climate and extinction crisis and protecting Victoria's forests from logging is essential for fighting both. So this decision really makes sense on all levels because for a long time now, the native forest logging industry in Victoria has been completely loss-making, reliant on hefty government subsidies and workers have faced... Um, increasing uncertainty. And funds can quite rightly now go towards supporting workers and their families to transition into sustainable injuries whilst preserving vital ecosystems.
0: Yeah, just so many many positives there and just no negatives. Just um, makes so much sense. Absolutely. Darcy, how have the activities of Forest Conservation Victoria and other grassroots local forest protection organisations contributed to today's outcome?
9: It's been it's been a very long process. I suppose direct action against forests has been going on for a lot of years. Um, forest Conservation Victoria, we started in, uh, I think it was about 2018, and we did action um, up at Mount um, Borbore and places up there, and... A lot of what we were doing was just sort of mobilising the coops and trying to send a message that, you know, we just we want to take a stand and stop logging in its tracks. We'd, it also helped a lot to sort of buy time and halt logging to do surveys and look into what other um, values were in those areas and in those coops. So often if we knew that they were going into a contentious area or there were possible legal grounds for endangered species. We had to set up a blockade, and that would give us a few days to do surveys and um, put in environmental reports and then try and get it halted more uh, longer term. And, um, yeah, I mean, it feels like on an individual level, it always felt like it was small and hard and we were just sort of battling it out, and it's pretty um, exhausting sort of work. But... um, it sort of felt like in the bigger picture, in time, something was going to happen and that we'd, we'd eventually get some change and that's what we've seen and that's why it's been such a relief, such a relief to finally have a feeling of big win, which is great.
0: Absolutely. Nice to be on the right side of history. Um, you talked about, um, Darcy, you talked about, um, buying time, you know, through that important direct action for citizen science to take place and for the exploration of, of legal grounds um, to defend forests. Natalie, the Victorian Premier's press release cites prolonged legal action and court decisions as a direct influence on their decision to end native forest logging earlier than previously announced um, in Victoria. What role has EJA played in these court matters and, and, and how have these matters helped to protect forests?
4: Yeah, a really important part of our work at EJA has been representing community groups in court and bringing litigation to hold the industry to account. Um, In January 2020, EJA launched a Supreme Court case against Big Forest um, on behalf of our client, Wildlife of the Central Highlands, known as WATCH, um, which is a community group of citizen scientists from Victoria's Central Highlands. And the community group's legal challenge seeks to stop big Forest from logging areas of unburnt habitat for threatened species impacted by bushfires um, like the Greater Glider. WATCH is alleging that logging operations in areas where threatened species impacted by bushfires have been sighted or where their habitat exists is unlawful until the state, um, until the state and federal government have concluded their bushfire biodiversity response and until Vic Forest protects threatened species in light of the outcomes and the impacts of the bushfires. Watch uh, was granted injunctions to protect 40 um, forest areas while the case was heard, and closing submissions occurred in March this year, and we're currently waiting on judgment in that matter. Another key case um, was our case representing Friends of Leadbeater's Possum against Dick Forest in the federal court to stop logging in vital habitat for Leadbeater's Possum and Greater Gliders in Victoria's central highlands. And In that case, Friends of Leadbeater's Possum alleged that logging by Dick Forest in 66 areas of habitat for the critically endangered species um, and the vulnerable Greater Glider contravened federal law. And this is the only only the second case ever brought in the 21-year history of Australia's national environment protection law that challenged the special exemption given to the logging industry from laws that protect threatened species um, by the Regional Forest Agreement. And while we originally won, our Vic Forest Appeals and the Federal Court found in favour of Vic Forest on just one ground out of 31. Um, They found that even when conducted in habitat critical to the survival of wildlife, Facing a high risk of extinction and in breach of state law, Vic Forest logging operations are still exempt from federal environment law under regional forest agreements. But despite this, um, it wasn't all bad. The case still established that logging is permanently destroying habitat critical to the survival of the Leadbeater's possum and greater glider. Is a cause of the decline of the important populations necessary for their long-term survival, and that current reserves are inadequate to protect the species from their risk. Their high risk of extinction. And that case led to other groups um, commencing litigation, um, which were successful in November last year, to protect tree tree G-buns, greater gliders and yellow-bellied gliders.
0: Fantastic. And the practical impact of of these cases is that Vic Forests cannot then go into those coops anymore and and log. That's right?
4: That's right. So they... um, have been successful in obtaining injunctions, which are quite um, have kind of specific prescriptions about what they can and can't
0: do. That's fantastic. Um, and it feels like these court cases have um, made important gains, um, but obviously... We can only go so far with the laws that are currently in place and so it's really positive that the Victorian Government has made this announcement today. Um, And I guess my next question is, um, Darcy, does this mean everything's going to be okay now Um, and we don't have to worry about Victoria's native forests and ecosystems at all anymore? Uh,
9: It it feels like we should celebrate a big win because it's been decades of work for a lot of people and it is the end of Native Clearfell logging as we know it Um, but there still is a lot of open ends that aren't answered and um, yeah ways that they can still operate as plans to transition into fire mitigation which is contentious because they're just using that as a cover to sort of go into storm affected areas or bushfire affected areas and pick up all the salvage logs like that at um, Wombat Forest. There's plans for, well, they've been out there, yeah, salvaging under the guise of sort of recovery and they plan to move into the Dandenong Ranges National Park. Which, uh, yeah, under sort of the guise of storm recovery and that that's outside of the um, native clearfell operations and it's unclear whether they will continue, but they most likely will with that sort of stuff. Um, but yeah, it's a it's a big end to to what we've been fighting for for a long time. But there's still a lot of risks um, coming up, and I think yeah, they're they're still going to be in significant areas, which is concerning.
0: Yeah, and Natalie, do you have anything to add on that point?
4: Yeah, I completely agree with Darcy, and like any good lawyers, will definitely be reading the fine print. Um, but for now, we really congratulate the government for listening the science in taking this incredibly important step to protect Victoria's native forests for future generations.
0: Absolutely and it is so important just to take that time to celebrate the incredible work that both your organisations and so many other people have done across Victoria for so long so congratulations and um, it's so exciting for all of us.
2: You've just heard from fellow 3CR show, Done by Law, where Beth King was joined by Darcy from Forest Conservation Victoria and Natalie Hogan from Environment Justice Australia to discuss the end of native forest logging announced in the state budget and the anti-protest laws that still remain in place.
10: So it's up to us, the people... We need a treaty in this country. We need to end to the war in this country. And the only way we can do that is through a peace treaty. Not the one that you see in Victoria, not the one you see in Queensland, not the one you see in the Northern Territory, because they talk treaty and still lock our people up. They still kill our people. They still desecrate our land and our water. A treaty means peace. A treaty means
2: equality.
10: And a treaty means justice. Thank you.
5: You're listening to Radical Radio on 3CR. 855 on your AM dial, 3CR digital, and podcasting and streaming on 3cr.org.au.
1: Total lack of respect for
4: the law. Tune in to Done by Law.
10: An informal and
3: irreverent look at the law. Critical insights and analysis from diverse community
8: perspectives. Done by Law, 6pm Tuesdays. Tune in to Rainbows Don't Fade with Age on Radio 3CR fortnightly on Mondays at 2pm.
0: Rainbows Don't Fade with Age, Melbourne's only show dedicated to all things LGBTI aging and age care
8: with stories and information to empower and inspire action for all those interested in the health, well-being, and visibility of older LGBTI people. From a private life so public as the tabloids caught your tears being to cry. How sad, how tragic. But it doesn't have to be that way on the Burning Vinyl Alternative Music Program.
3: Burning Vinyl, Fridays, 2-4pm on
2: 3CR. And now we're going to be joined by Idil and Lara, who are committee members of the community collective Mahala, run alongside two others, Ayusu and Majid. Mahala is a creative community hub that aims to foster ways to stay connected to our cultures through public gatherings like picnics and conversations and dance nights and film screenings and much more. And they offer an exclusive space that is safe and inclusive and welcoming. Mahala's community consists of cultures from all across the Middle East and Anatolia, and they join us today to speak about the Mahala's earthquake relief fundraiser for Turkey and Syria at Schoolhouse Studios this Sunday. How are you, both? Thanks so much for joining us on DCR. Good morning, hi. hi. <laughs> Good morning. Good morning. <laughs> Great to be here. No, thank you so much for you know being on the call. Um, I know getting up early is sometimes a pain. <laughs> <laughs> Um, well, I thought maybe we could start off with, you know, what Mahala is and, you know, how it really came to be, because it's like such a beautiful, important space. Maybe we can start off with you, Adil? Yeah. Um,
10: before um, I begin, I just wanted to acknowledge that I'm calling from Wurundjeri land and um, pay my respects to the traditional owners, past and present Um just acknowledging that we couldn't do this work um, as settlers on this land without acknowledging our privilege um, and the dedication and commitment of First Nation people. Um, it is truly part of the inspiration of Mahala and why, why we create these spaces. Um, so, yeah, I guess it was created out of a necessity for community and um, finding that space that understood and accepted all intersectional identities within our, our communities and regions. Um, but I think Lara probably could speak more on the creation because um, she was there from the beginning. I joined later on. Oh, of
5: course. Um,
10: yeah. Lara, do you want to speak on that?
5: Yeah, yeah for sure. Um, it started in 2020 um, at a Thai restaurant in East Brunswick <laughs> uh, with a few friends. Um, and, uh, you know, a lot of us are you know children of the diaspora, our parents were, uh, well, you know, Turkish immigrants, Lebanese immigrants, Kurdish immigrants. Um, and we grew up in this in vibrant community spaces. Um, and then, you know, the older we got, um, you know, our parents' um, sort of community efforts dwindled a little and we found ourselves, um, you know, really uh, seeking that out for our generation. Um, and we thought, well, why don't we just make it for ourselves? Um and 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 we did and it's been um it all it's all worked out which has <laughs> been really nice um and here we still are 3 years later um and Idil even you know even though Idil may not have been at that you know that initial meeting she um they've been at every event um that's yes. been running since the beginning so um I still think of Idil as uh, there since the beginning <laughs> Oh, thank you <laughs> <laughs>
2: Oh, that's so, so wonderful. It sounds, you know, I can hear it in both of your voices that you really care about uh, Mahala and, you know, being part of the community and it brings a lot of joy. Um, and you've also run some really, you know, important and beautiful events and it, it's clear that it's a really important community. Um, And I wanted to touch on, you know, the upcoming fundraiser that you're putting on this Sunday, the 28th, uh, because on February the 26th of 2023, Turkey and Syria were struck by a really catastrophic 7.8 magnitude earthquake and subsequent aftershocks. An estimated 50,000 people lost their lives and millions are permanently displaced. And, you know, three months on with, you know, all of our hearts still heavy, could you touch on what impacts this continues to have in Turkey and Syria and why it is really important to continue to campaign and raise these issues. Maybe I'll start with you, Laura.
5: Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, the Fed 6 earthquake was uh, catastrophic um, and, like, you could describe the, um, the effects as apocalyptic, like, you know, major cities fell um, and people are still um, in really desperate need of aid. Um, And we haven't forgotten, you know, it's been three months, but we have not forgotten. The world's, you know, attention has definitely diminished in the fickle news cycle. Um, But I guess, you know, that being a part of our community, it's still um, very real to us. And, um, yeah, yeah, it's really important to um, maintain attention, raise awareness, um, you know, what do you reckon it is?
10: Yeah, I think it's it's like what you said, Iléz, about... The people that have been displaced, I think it was something like 10 million people um, are in need of urgent, urgent care. And that's things like, um, you know, where they're sleeping, the food they're getting, the water they're drinking. There's children that have become orphaned. There's, you know, I think it's like 50,000 buildings in Turkey that um, are now in ruins and people can't enter. Um, there's a lot of struggle around accessing health care and that, you know, that access to safe housing and health care can have a huge impact on people's mental health as well as just their day-to-day. And, you know, children are more vulnerable when things like this happen and it's really important that... As a community, we continue to raise that awareness um, because we haven't forgotten and, you know, having that privilege, being part of the diaspora, we feel like we have to do something and or anything, really, and the best way to do that from afar, I think, is to raise funds, and that's why we thought um, having a fundraiser to bring our community together is is the best way that we can help.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for that, Idul Lara. Like, I it's very clear, I think, you know, the the magnitude of the earthquake and what has happened is sometimes maybe feels unimaginable or so, like, to a scale that is hard to really feel in your heart, but it's so clear um, how important mutual aid is, like, within uh, Turkey and Syria and also within the diaspora and sending it um, back and helping out, particularly with, you know, really racist international (laughs) aid policies um and i think also for maybe this is more of a personal question but it's it's something i was um, wondering about uh you know being away from your like family and friends who live in the impacted areas and being you know being part of the diaspora as well I, i i feel similarly like when um really catastrophic events happen in india and then i I'm like, how do I find community to kind of grieve that feeling? Because yeah. you know, it's hard mm. to you. You feel kind of helpless, and I'm just wondering if maybe you share similar similar sentiments. it all, Larry. Both. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean, absolutely.
10: I think. Yeah, I think that that um, that feeling of help, helplessness is is really strange, and you know, we experience this vicarious trauma, and then this heavy feeling of guilt and shame of like, well I'm over here and I don't know what yeah. to do and I can't help and um, it is really it is really hard to deal with I think. Um, we did notice a lot in our communities that, that vicarious trauma was really hard to, to deal with. But I yeah. think Yeah, I think and I it try felt and like use you were alone moments. in it sometimes. Yeah, yeah. I think we also far alone away in it. Mm, but I think we try and use those moments to remember community we do have here and how it can provide that abundance of strength Um, because you know when we come together and we're stronger we can support uh support those who are overseas dealing
5: with these things yeah
2: yeah absolutely did you have anything else to add oh
5: just the same i remember you know i was i was working in this busy cafe um in the city in february when earthquakes happened and on my lunch break so just you know, in this busy food court, it was like you know, all this
6: in the business district of
5: the city. It it was the strangest feeling. It was like you know, the world was moving around me, um, and
10: mm.
5: my phone was pinging in all our you know sort of community um, group chats. And you know, we were all grieving and processing this thing that had happened so far away. And I just I felt yeah, such a mix of emotions of um, yeah, guilt and shame of you know, not having not you know, the privilege of not having been there, not being affected. But then this really strange other feeling of, um, yeah, being so disconnected from a community around me that didn't know what was going on, um, but like my inner circle was feeling it so deeply. So it's been, mm. yeah, it's been really strange to navigate. And I'm sure, you know, a lot of people in diaspora go through these things when something in the home really bad in the homeland happens. Um, but like you said, yeah, we have so you know we should use that privilege for good. We can come together and grieve together, support each other, and then um, you know put on this fundraiser. Hopefully, that will um, you know invigorate our community, um, get us to, again, be that sort of support for each other, um, and then you know send all the proceeds over to those who
2: need it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I know that. The fundraiser is, you know, this Sunday um, and it's really exciting. Could you tell us maybe a little bit more about the organisations on the ground that you're, like, hoping to contribute to and just maybe more about the event? Maybe start off with you, Lara?
5: Yeah, so our um, fundraiser is this Sunday. Um, Please come.
10: Um,
5: (laughs) It's going to be at Schoolhouse Studios in Coburg, which is, like, a community um, artist. Studio. it's got you know lots of um, amazing practitioners working out of there, and they have a public community space. Um, so we're putting on a barbecue, um, and there's going to be it's more like you sort of like a Middle Eastern style barbecue, um, and we're going to have lots of fresh salads and dips, um, some Middle Eastern desserts and tea. Um, we've got lots of entertainment lined up. Um, some of our friends. Um, DJing, um, and we've got some live Anatolian music, uh, contemporary henna designs by um, a collective called Another Collective. Um, and we've got uh, the uh, lovely uh, Brunswick Backgammon Club joining us. So, um, you know, you can zone out and um, play some backgammon or, you know, finally learn backgammon for those who, like me, who don't know how to play. Um, <laughs> Um, we've got um, a belly dancer coming, and um, and you know we've got some some speeches from um, those in the community, some of our dear Turkish and Syrian friends. Um, it should be a it should be a warm, um, welcoming day of community. It's family friendly. Um, you can purchase tickets um, on our Eventbrite, which um, you can find via our Instagram page, um, at Mahala Melbourne.
2: And, um, yeah, we hope to see you there. Yeah, amazing. Yeah. It, really, it really does sound like a really huge warm hug of an event. Um, and with Idil, did you have anything that you would want to call attention to or something that you're really looking forward to at the fundraiser? I think um, I was just going to
10: say, you know, with all the entertainment and food that we've put on, I always look forward to coming together with with our community and and our allies and finding those really small joys in in these really hard moments and and those small joys are just meeting new people, seeing familiar faces, having, you know, a hug. So I'm really looking forward to to just being in community. I'm also really excited to get some henna done. I have never had contemporary henna, so um that's something I'm looking forward to. Um, and also, Lara, do you mind sharing the people that we're donating to?
4: Yeah,
5: absolutely. So, um, you know, uh, when the earthquakes happened, of course, everyone sort of, you know, was like, oh my God, where do I, um, how can I help? Where do I donate money to? Um, and that can be really difficult, um, because there's not a lot of transparency, um, in these organisations in the region. Um, but thanks to our community, um, We've gotten some, you know, our own personal research. We've got good recommendations. Um, and this is just two out of those recommendations, but we'll be donating um, equally between um, Turkish and Syrian charities. So in uh, Turkey, we'll be donating to ASA, which is a non-government organisation um, founded by Turkish rock singer um, <laughs> and public figure Haluk Levent. Um, and they have a highly active voluntary network across the country, um, especially in the affected regions, and they've had a pivotal role in campaigning to collect funds for those affected by the earthquake. Um, and they've really won the trust and support of millions within Tukia with um, so little trust in um, government aid. Um, a lot of um, celebrities, um, public figures, and citizens, of course, have decided, and organisations as well, have to, would rather um, send their funds to Afpa rather than government. So their popularity has really increased since um, the devastation, and they're doing really, really important work. Yep. Um, they're super transparent, and yeah, they're you know providing um, all the basic necessities like food, water, medicine, tents you know, for the now homeless. Um, And even building temporary schooling structures um, for kids who, you know, still need to pass school. Um, And then in Syria, we'll be supporting um, Esther's Help, um, again, a non-government organisation. They're based in Sweden, um, and they provide direct support to those in need in the Middle East, particularly Syria. Um, And they work through local churches um, and on-the-ground community networks. Um, to ensure that um, their money goes directly to those in need. And, again, they've been delivering essential aid. Um, yes. And their teams
4: yeah, sorry, we're talking a lot. No,
2: more. no, 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 not at all. <laughs> um, unfortunately, that's kind of all we have time for today. But um, it's clear that we could probably all speak for many, many moons. Um, but we'll put the notes of you know the organisations you're donating to, the how to get tickets, and your Instagram all in the show notes. And that is um, Mahala. So that is M A H. A double L L A. But thank you so much for joining us here today, Idil thank and Lara.
4: Thank
2: you. Yeah,
5: thank our you. Thank you so much for having us. Absolutely,
2: anytime. Hope you have a really good day.
5: Thank you. you. Thank you. you. Bye.
10: Bye.
2: Bye. Bye. You've just heard from Idil and Lara, who are committee members from the community collective Mahala, run alongside two others, Ayusu and Majid. Mahala is a creative community hub that aims to foster ways to stay connected to our cultures through public gatherings like picnics and conversations and dance nights and film screenings and much more. And they joined us to speak about the Earthquake Relief Fundraiser for Turkey and Syria at Schoolhouse Studios in Coburg this Sunday, the 28th of May from 1 to 6 p.m.
8: Tune in to Rainbows Don't Fade With Age on Radio 3CR fortnightly on Mondays at 2pm.
0: Rainbows Don't Fade With Age, Melbourne's only show dedicated to all things LGBTI, ageing and age care.
8: With stories and information to empower and inspire action for all those interested in the health, well-being and visibility of older LGBTI people.
0: Published or not has been on air for
8: over 20 years. And in that time, it's been hosted by Jan Goldsmith. Well, just recently, over the last seven years, I've been joined by David McLean. We'll be talking about text, discussing words and ideas.
0: With local authors, authors from interstate, or sometimes even from other countries. You can stream it live or find it on your favourite podcast app.
8: So join us... Every Thursday at eleven thirty on three CR.
7: I've been working on my
6: rewrite, that's right. I'm going to change the ending, go throw away my title and toss it in the trench.
3: Oh, so next up, (laughs) we are going to a song that I am very excited to play. Um we're going to build up to it because I'm just waiting for the headphone jack. <laughs> um hang on Inez, I've actually changed my mind and I want to play a different song from the same album. So this is by a noughties, uh girl band which was developed when two people met at art school. Um Sorry, Music School, and they are a First Nations duo. So the song we're about to hear is called Sublime by Shakaya.
7: I got a feeling you don't mind. Boy, I've been taking up your time. Tell me what you feel, what's on your mind. Everything is sweet and sublime. I got a feeling you don't mind. Boy, i been taking up your time. Tell me what you feel, what's on your mind. Everything is sweet and sublime. Showing off on the big court Making moves that can never be taught you so fine, that's what I thought Baby, the moment from the tip-off Can you hear it to the backboard? And come and tell me if you can't afford To play one-on-one in my court Baby, yeah, that's what I thought I got a feeling you don't mind Boy, I've been taking up your time Tell me what you feel is on your mind Everything is sweet and sublime you don't mind, boy. I've been taking up your time. Tell me what you feel, what's on your mind. Everything is sweet and sublime. If you can be my man, come step into play. I'll be a coach, I'll train every day. And I don't even care what the rest gotta say. Cause they don't know, don't know the games we play. Can you step into my sideline? You'll find no one wasting my time. What you're what you're going to do? Taking up your time, tell me what you feel, what's on your mind. Everything is sweet and sublime. I got a feeling you don't mind. Boy, I've been taking up your time. Tell me what you feel, what's on your mind. Everything is sweet and sublime. I got what you want, baby. I got what you need, baby. I got what you want, baby. I got what you need. I got what you want, baby. You need, baby I know what you want, baby I know what you <laughs> need Always be press so baby, take me on One-on-one, wanna, wanna, wanna see you sweat, wanna see you getting it on When the whistle blows, I'll be your true referee, baby going to let you know that you will be playing for me So what you'll when you step on the court Because this game is too short To be pretending and lending you things I've never been taught Cause you're so blind. can you give me a sign? Cause you're sublime And I'll do anything to make it mine I got feelings Tell me what you're feeling i got a feeling you don't mind, mind. Boy I've been taking up your time Tell me what I you feel, it's on your mind Everything is sweet and sublime. i got a feeling you don't mind Boy I've been taking up your time Tell me what you feel, it's on your mind Everything is sweet and sublime. i got a feeling you don't mind Sweet
2: and sublime You've just heard uh, the song Every. Nope, sorry. Sublime. My <laughs> sublime <laughs> by Shaq Aya. That's That's right. Shakaya. That's S H A K A Y A. Such a fun track to lead us into the last part of the show um, where we just go over what we've had a little chat about today. And I'll kick us off. So first, we heard a stand, uh, uh, interview with uh, Rag, who is uh, under Rag, sorry, who is an organizer, critic, and recently retired DJ, living and working on unceded Ranjo country. And they run digital performance space Room Two, and party series Cool Room, and work as a booker at Miscellanea, which is a club venue. And they joined us today to speak about you know DJ hiatus, holistic safety and representation, the trappings of elitism exploitation, and what it means to really make decisions based on creative and cultural merit. And after that,
3: we were joined by Wagaya Wamba Wamba elder, Eleanor Burke. Eleanor is the chair of the Europe Justice Commission, which is the first formal truth-telling process in so-called Australia aimed at addressing systemic harms and injustices experienced by First Peoples since colonisation. And Eleanor brought us some updates from the Commission's last round of public hearings. Uh, The Commission began in May 2021. After that, we heard from fellow 3CR show Done by Law, where Beth King was joined by Darcy from Forest Conservation Victoria and Natalie Hogan from Environment Justice Australia to discuss the end of native forest logging announced by the state budget on Tuesday and the anti-protest laws that remain in place. You can catch that full episode of Done by Law every Tuesday from 6pm on 3CR.
2: And then we were joined lastly by Idil and Lara who are committee members of the community collective Mahala run alongside Ayusu and Majid which is a creative community hub that fosters ways to stay connected to our cultures through public gatherings like picnics and conversations, and dance lights, and we spoke about the fundraiser that is happening this Sunday on the 28th of May uh, to for raising money for the earthquake in Turkey and Syria that occurred around three months ago. So please show up, um, and thanks so much for joining us here today
3: quick side note before we leave you today um that Occupy for Climate is happening right now you can join Extinction Rebellion on at the Parliament Gardens from the 25th to the 27th of May so get down there